So it sounds like a verbal DEI gym where you're kind of like getting your reps in. <laughs> Literally, it isn't. You, you, you're doing pull-ups and saying it's problematic. Push-ups and saying it's harmful, baby. Right. You get in the, the DEI gym. Absolutely, Robert. Welcome to the Voices of Inclusion podcast, the place where you'll hear strategic and tactical advice shared by diversity, equity, and inclusion experts. This podcast is brought to you by Matheson.io, the world's first DEI operating system. If you're looking for DEI assessments, benchmarking tools, sourcing support, training, and more, look no further. Go to Matheson.io. The link to connect with us is in the description. Let's get back to the episode. So today we are joined by none other than the fearless woman herself, Jen Fry, who is a captivating speaker um, and someone who champions diversity, equity, and inclusion at companies across the country. But uh, first, Jen, could we uh, could you tell us a little bit about you and um, what you do to help companies in the realm of diversity, equity, and inclusion? You know, Robert, I'm going to say that's probably one of the best intros I've had. And I've done quite a few podcasts, so shout out to you for that one. I appreciate it. Yeah. So my company, Genfry Talks, really looks at things through an anti-racist lens. And I think a really important thing of when you're doing DEI work, you have to find what is your area that you could be amazing in. I think it's easy to say, I can do everything. I can do data, strategy. I can do workshops. I can do all these things. And that is not me. I am not your data person. I am not your assessment person. I am not your strategy person. My lane, I am driving my Kia Nero right and hard through my lane. And that is workshops, facilitating, really getting people to unpack themselves and start to understand themselves in relation to the work of social justice, inclusion, anti-racism, whatever it is. It's helping people with those first steps of understanding who am I in relation to the work. I think sometimes what we tend to see is people look at this work on like a very broad scale and say, well, my department isn't doing this. My company isn't doing this versus saying, what am I not doing? Especially if I'm a position that's a position of leadership, what am I not doing? What is the potential harm that I'm creating? So those are things that I try and do in my workshops is really get people to start understanding themselves, especially in relation to the systems. What does it look like to understand who I am, how I perpetuate harmful systems, how I interact with harmful systems and how I can really start to peel them back and destroy them. So that's a huge part of the workshops, what I do with companies, because like I said, many times people are like, well, I can do everything, baby, you can't do everything. And the, the quicker you realize it, the faster you're gonna realize what amazing work you can do. And that's why I say, don't come to me asking Jen Fry, what can you do for strategy or Jen Fry, what can you do for assessment? I'm just gonna do like old school where you'd be like, get a piece of paper and be like, do you like this? Yes, no. That is my assessment. Basic. You don't want me doing your assessment. But workshops, sessions, consulting, really helping people pay, peel back the layers of who they are in relation to the work, what changes they need to do, and also who they are in relation to the systems and what changes they need to do in themselves to break down the systems is what I do. There's so much to unpack there, uh, Jen. I think um, I've seen a lot of your speaking engagements and it seems like people are so engaged when you're speaking with them. Um, and I've heard you speak about managing relationships within teams through removing that power dynamic, especially from a leadership perspective. Um, could you talk a little bit about why it's important for leaders to sit down and have real conversations with their team members? Um, also during those conversations, what should leaders uh, ask their support team members during those conversations? That, that's a good question. And I don't think the power dynamic is talked about enough. And the reality of the situation is you will never be able to break down a power dynamic. If I control, if you get hired or fired, 
if you get a promotion, if you get a salary raise, there is never going to be a power dynamic that's just destroyed. It, it's impossible. However, what you can do is say, where do I fall in this power dynamic and how can I lessen it? Because the more you start to understand what a power dynamic is and how you use it, the better you are going to be as a leader. And I think that the problem is, is many people do not realize how they use the power dynamic to really be problematic. And so it's used as, as power to say, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to do it, regardless of what your thoughts are. And so I think as leaders, you first have to say, like, how do I sit in this power dynamic and how do I use it for me and against other people? There was this great LinkedIn post and the, the gentleman, he talked about these like 11 promises of a manager. And some of them were like, so about the power dynamic and I appreciate it. You know, one said, um, when I schedule a meeting with you, I'll always say when I schedule it, what it's meant to be about. I will never schedule meetings without an agenda. How big of a power dynamic is it that the manager knows exactly what the meeting is and just says, hey, can we meet tomorrow? And so the person they're supervising is, you freak out about everything. You're like, what did I do yesterday? What did I do three weeks ago? Was it this? Was it that? That's a power dynamic, right? That's saying, I have complete control of this situation and you are walking in and you have no clue what's going to occur. That's a power dynamic. Another one that he mentions is um, when I drop into your DMs, I'll say, always say hi and why. No suspense, no small talk while you're wondering what I want. That's a power dynamic. Your boss messages you, hey, Robert, what's going on? And you're sitting there like, did I forget something? What did I do? Where was I supposed to be? You're looking at your, your calendar really quickly. You're looking at that email box really quickly. That's a power dynamic. That's about control. I'm jumping into this situation fully knowing what I'm going to talk to you about. And you are sprinting through everything you've done in the last 13 decades to figure out why they want to talk to you. All right. There's another one that he mentioned. Um, News or announcements that significantly impact your work or your team will come from me directly in a one-on-one, -on -one, not revealed in a big meeting. That's a power dynamic. Because if I have to tell you big, important things, and most likely it's going to be bad things, we'll say, then you don't want the face-to-face -face interaction. And that's why you tend to see the meeting is like, you know, unfortunately, Robert, we're downsizing your team and you have and three people will be removed. Well, you can't react the way you want to in a real meeting. And they know that, which is why you see a lot of supervisors, a lot of people in power do the big meeting about really bad stuff because they don't want to see your face face to face to hear you, to hear anything you want to push back on. They don't want to do that, right? We've been seeing all these um, companies who do like the, the two minute Zoom meeting of like, hey, all 50,000 of you are laid off and they don't want to have to deal with the interaction. They don't want to see the person crying, the person upset, the person worried about their kids, their mortgage. So that's a power dynamic. And so um, I'll send you the link to these things that this gentleman on LinkedIn, I can't remember his name, said, so you can put it in the notes. Because I think these are really important things that people who supervise need to understand that they are doing. Even if they're like, well, I didn't realize that. It don't matter if you didn't realize. This is the anxiety and stress you are causing in the people that you supervise. Um, another one, it says, you'll get feedback from me when it's fresh. There will be no feedback in your performance review that you hear for the first time. That is a horrible, harmful power dynamic. You go through a whole year with no feedback. And then in your performance review, where it means if you get promoted or you get a salary increase, do they lay all this feedback? Well, you know, what you did this time was a problem, this time was a problem, this time was a problem. Don't do that to people. If, if you are not giving them feedback at the time it happened, don't give it to them.
And I say that because what happens is, is that you now make performance reviews this harmful space, this anxious space that a person sees on their, their calendar, oh, I have my performance review in, in a week. Oh, I have my performance review in three days, two days. And now they're stressed out. Now they can't handle it. And now they're going into this performance review so high on anxiety because last time you threw all this stuff that you did not even give them the chance to change or talk about because now it's documented. And so it might have been this thing about um, you were late to a meeting and they could have a very valid reason, right? Like, you know, I don't know if you have any kids, Robert, people with kids, like your time is not your time, it's your kid's time. Like that's just the reality of it. It might've been my kid was really sick and throwing up. And the fact that I came to the meeting was a positive, but because you talk about it, you don't know that reason. Now it's documented and they might not even remember what it was. And so that's like, it's, it's that power dynamic of these things that managers do that has been done to them. And they don't realize that's harmful. Or when it says, I trust you manage your own time. You don't need to clear it in advance with me if you're taking time off or going out of the office. Right now we're seeing kind of this, um, I don't wanna say a war, but this budding of heads of what working remote really means. We're seeing people who for two years worked remote flawlessly, but now that the office quote unquote back open, it's like this idea of now you need to show yourself on your camera, your mouse needs to move. If you go to the bathroom, you have to tell us. If you eat, you have like all these parameters. You can only work remote from your house, from the room right next to the bathroom. You can't work remote from another place. Don't you dare work remote from another state. Don't you dare, dare work remote from another country. Don't uh, work remote is what I deem as working remote. And you have to tell us when you're doing these things and they try and put it under this umbrella of like taxes. Well, because the taxes, you know what, coincidentally for two years during COVID, no one cared a damn about taxes. But now that we could be back in the office, you expect people to be in Cirque du Soleil and jump through flaming hoops just to work remote, which you allowed for them for two years and they have excellent performance reviews to back it up. So I think those are the things that like we need to think about when we talk about that performance review. And so kind of your second question was like, you know, the importance of sitting down and having real conversations with team members. If you don't do the stuff that, excuse me, if you do the stuff that we talked about, you'll never be able to sit down and have real conversations. Because the problem is, is you've already created this air of distrust within your department with you, with your interactions. I can't even trust my interactions with you, Robert. So if I can't even trust my interactions with you, when you sit down, I'm going to be like, hi, Robert. Hi. Yeah. yeah. How's it going? You, you can have no sincerity, no trust, no nothing. You, and you definitely won't have your team going to bat for you when the crap hits the fan. And so it's really important for supervisors to say, what is this culture I have created? How do people interact with each other? How do they interact with me? Is it a culture where people just always jump over each other's head because they don't want to talk to the person? Is it where the manager or supervisor is having to always put out small fat fires because they haven't allowed people to enter into conflict themselves? Like, what is the culture that you have in the department? Because that will situate if as a supervisor, you can sit down and have real conversations. Because if there's no trust built, people are not going to have real conversations with you. And so then what I tend to see from managers is this idea of, well, I tried to sit down and have a conversation with Robert, but he just didn't want to talk to me. So I don't know. I don't even know what to do now. No, because every time you come and talk to Robert before, it was always some scathing type of feedback, right? The, the performance reviews were this kind of war zone where he's just getting hit with bullets every single time because he didn't know the stuff he was doing incorrectly. 
and now you want to talk with Robert? Robert ain't trying to talk with you because he's also know what stuff that he's talking to you about would be held against him in the future. So Robert is not interested in doing that. And so I think that's a really important aspect is to really think about. Because if you think about the power dynamic, if you created a culture of trust where you can sit down and have conversations, where team members can sit down and have conversations with you, where it's not a situation of them having to go tell their boss, hey, I'm going to go talk to so-and-so versus, yeah, you can go talk to the person above me. I don't care because I know I'm creating a great culture. If they understand that, if they understand that their teammates will just come or their, their teammates or their, the people they supervise will just come in their office and want to chat and they're not wasting time because that's another thing, right? If, they're, if the people they supervise just want to come and chat and then you hit them with the, oh, so don't you have something to do? They will never come in your office again. If you are more worried about them working than them coming and building that relationship, you're, like you, you have to think about all those factors because when you use time against them in that way, then what do you think is going to happen? You're not going to be able to have a, 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 a culture where people can come and sit down. And then last thing you asked was, you know, what should leaders ask, um, ask their support? Excuse me, it says, what should the leaders ask their support team members? If you create a great culture, you're not going to have to really ask a lot because they're going to naturally give it to you. It's not going to be this fake type of culture. They're going to give it to you. It's going to be this one of mutual give and take, right? If you're asking them, you know, what do you need from me? How can I support you? They will tell you, but you'll also have been talking about beforehand. It's not going to come as a, as a surprise that they're going to need certain things because you've been talking about and you've developed that culture. And so those are all things to think about with each of those, the power dynamic, the support, the conversations. It all circles back to what type of culture do you have that the people you work with inside of it feel trusted. They feel like they can do their job. They don't feel micromanaged. They feel loved. They supported. If you have that culture, those things will just naturally happen. That's awesome. And, you know, it sounds like a lot of what relationship building is about is just really built around trust. Um, and, you know, also, I think a really great topic when it comes to DEI is biases, you know, especially um, when we're addressing the culture within the company. Um, so when thinking through biases um, in the way that you've worked with teams, what have been some of the most outstanding outcomes of the conversations or workshops that you've had with other companies that you serve right now? I would say this sounds very simple. The fact that people are realizing that they have biases. The amount of people who want to navigate the world saying, I have no biases, I am completely objective, is so problematic. And so you have to peel back that layer that people realize that we're socialized to have biases. We are socialized to have hierarchies of race, hierarchies of gender, hierarchies of ability. Like we are socialized that way. And if you don't first peel back the layer of understanding, that I have been socialized to live within this hierarchy and sometimes unconsciously put me above or below people, then you can't do the next steps, right? If I, as an able-bodied person, mean that I can pretty much do everything without assistance, don't understand that I've been socialized to think of myself above a disabled person, then I'm not gonna be able to acknowledge my biases of thinking that people in wheelchairs with crutches, people that are neurodivergent, people that are blind or deaf or below me, I can't think of my biases. I can't think of right the harm I've created and so the first thing is literally sitting saying like what biases do I have and how are they showing up and those are like I said like the simple simple points a lot of times what I tend to see with these um these what is it like unconscious bias trainings is that they really look at stuff in like this very distant way from people 
right? These are biases that people have. These are biases, how they show up. No, I need you to say, how are my biases showing up? I need that workshop to be like, how, what are your biases about gender? What are your biases about working parents? Because we don't think about that. The working mom who has to call out sick a few times because their kid, oh, well, they can't, you know, parent, blah, blah. No, kids at the young age are sick all the time. Them babies are always sick. If you don't realize your biases against working parents, then you're not going to understand the policies and procedures that you're creating might be potentially disproportionately affecting them. And so thinking about the biases that we've been taught, that we've been socialized and peeling those back and asking yourself, how are those showing up in ways that maybe I didn't realize? How are they showing up in, in ways I thought I was doing well, but I'm actually not? I think about um, people in wheelchairs, how I follow a lot of uh, people with disabilities on Instagram and Twitter. And one person talked about how they had to put spikes on their handlebars because people would just push them. That's a biasy thinking that, I know better than the person in the wheelchair that they need me to push them around. They need me to do X, Y, and Z. And so we have this mindset that when you see someone with a disability that I need to come and be captain, save a person. You need me to do X, Y, and Z. And they're like, nah, fam, I'm good. No, you need me. And then they'll be like, I'm really good. And you'd be like, are you sure? Oh, I just, it just hurts me to watch. Are you sure? Oh, I just feel so bad. And now you've made it about yourself, not the person who's been living their life, who knows how to do what they need and ask for the help. Now you put yourself upon them because you think you know it's best in this situation. And so really, if we go back to the question, it's people peeling back the layers of what are my biases and how are they showing up? Because the reality of the situation is, is that they show up in some of the most covert ways that we don't even realize it. Because we think of like the overt ways our biases show up, right? That maybe it's kind of a way of, of a man being like, I don't think a woman could do this job. And that's like the overt way that we think of it. We don't think of it the covert way of like, well, I know this person just had a baby. I just don't know if they could come back and do their job the right way. That's a covert way. Or it might be the way of saying, you know, this person, all they need is X, Y tool to do their job well. And it might be like, well, I know that they're the best candidate and all they need is this, this tool that costs a hundred bucks. But what other things might they ask for? We just don't have the budget for. And now it's this covert way that it's kind of couched in budget, finance, best thing for the company. Well, you know, they might ask for other stuff or their wheelchair might need this ramp and that's going to be really expensive. And, and looking out for the, the best for the company, I just don't know if we can afford XYZ. I'm just looking out for the company. You know, I'm not saying anything about this person. I'm just saying for the company. We, we might not be able to afford this or do that or this, or it might cost, you know, we have to bring in a person to make sure we have ramps to these places or, or the doorway to the bathroom has to be widened because it's been ADA unaccessible. But I just don't think the business can afford that. So not because the person, you know, and then they'll try and couch it like, we love people with disabilities. We love them. We just don't know if the business can afford it right now. And those covert ways that you're saying that essentially people with disabilities are, um, What's the, what's the word like that there's going to cost a lot of money and that type of thing versus just saying the reality situations, our company is ADA inaccessible for anybody, for clients, for whoever it is, we need to make this more accessible because disability is the one thing that you could wake up and be disabled the next day. The one thing, literally you could be fine. You could wake up and you are disabled because of some type of bacteria infection, whatever. You could be walking down the street and get hit by something and you are disabled. And that's the one thing, but it's the one thing that we don't really take serious until it happens to us. When the, the president of your business goes into a wheelchair, 
you will be amazed at how accessible that building all of a sudden becomes. Coincidentally, but beforehand, there's all these reasons why it couldn't be. And so I think it's just this aspect that we talk about biases is getting people to realize how their biases show up, in what ways, in what covert and overt ways are they showing up and being very harmful and violent to not only current employees, future employees, clients, whatever it is. And so that, I think that's the biggest thing when we talk about like some of the companies, schools, you know, organizations I've worked with is them being like, damn, we didn't realize how, our, how bad our biases personally were and how they were creating this culture within the company that's harmful. Yeah. And, you know, you brought up so many really good points there. And I think a lot of it kind of brings up the conversation of conflict and how to navigate that. And I think you, you talk about conflict a lot. Um, can you explain uh, Can you explain how a person uh, understanding their relationship to conflict helps with these types of conversations? Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important. You know, as a society, we never really talk about our relationship to conflict. Heck, many times we don't even realize what it means to have a relationship to conflict. We just know we're in conflict or we're not in conflict. We don't have this understanding that I am, the way I handle conflict is because of my caretakers, my parents, my siblings, my grandparents. We don't think about, like, we are literally socialized and created of how we handle conflict through all the people that we always connect with. And so it's really important that we not only as coworkers, but also as supervisors understand what's our relationship to conflict. Am I conflict avoidant? Because if I'm a supervisor that's conflict avoidant, you best believe that my staff is conflict avoidant. That they know that they cannot interact with me in conflict, that they have to be walking on eggshells. That they know if I say something problematic during a meeting that because I'm so conflict avoidant that they now are trained not to talk to me about conflict. And so it's really important to think about like, where did I get my conflict avoidance? Did it come from my parents? Because my dad or my mom was really aggressive, mentally, physically, verbally aggressive and abusive to me. And because of that, I just don't want to engage in conflict because when I see it show, show up, it brings me back to those past times. And now I have that trauma coming up of someone's raising their voice. And I think back to how my parents used to handle conflict. Right. And so I don't think that people fully think about that of like, what's my relationship, not only with my coworkers, but how do I handle it with family? I think people always like to, you know, when I ask people what's their relationship to conflict, they'll always like put on other people and they'll be like, well, you know, when I see two coworkers in conflict, I like to mediate it. I'm like, nah, fam, I don't care about that. What about if you and that coworker got to go at it? That coworker mm -hmm. stole your idea. That coworker XYZ, how do you handle it? Because that's what I need to know. And many people don't like to acknowledge you know, that they'll just, like, I just ignore the coworker. I just won't talk to him again. Versus going up to that person and being like, yo, Robert, what you said was inappropriate. Or Robert, you know, that idea is when we worked on together, I'm kind of disappointed that you didn't say I brought you in or whatever it is, right? Like people don't want, because the face-to-face -face interaction is so uncomfortable. And especially with two years away from it, people don't know how to handle it. So you'll see people now on Zoom, when conflict happens, they'll turn off their screen. They'll just go away. Because now that's, the, I don't have to sit there and look at you, Robert. I can just turn off my screen and now I can go do what I want and pretty much ignore you. And so really understanding your conflict, it, it shows in your culture. Do you have a culture where people in the middle of a meeting can be like, hey, what you said was problematic. You're like, thank you, I appreciate. And then you keep it moving. You acknowledge it and you're like, I'll do better. Okay. Or do you have a, a, a culture where you get super defensive? You know me, but and now you're yelling. It's this argument and people just don't want to interact with you in conflict. Um, I think about faculty in, in higher education. Yo, faculty meetings be like war zones. 
the way they go at each other and cut, like, I'm like, bro, who, who, don't you think you can just talk to other people like that without getting your head split in? Like these folks be talking to each other really reckless with their words. And I'm like, how are you okay with sitting there across the table talking to someone that way? But that's the culture that's be created versus like, yeah, y'all can disagree, but we are not going to take it personal. We are not going to do that. And the people in leadership being okay with conflict, but saying we're not, these are the parameters of how we're going to talk to each other, how we are going to treat each other. And that completely comes down because I think we can all think of a boss. I have a boss who is so conflict avoidant, like so conflict, like she would not allow me to write notes when we were meeting. She was like, if you, if you have notes to write, you could write them afterwards. What? Like, I can't even write. Yeah, she won't let me write notes. Think about how conflict avoidant you have to be and how much of a power dynamic that you're, I'm not going to allow the person I'm supervising to write their own notes in their journal. And so I really think about like, what does it mean if you're supervising people, if you're even a parent of your relationship to conflict? Because the more you understand your relationship to conflict, then you're going to start to see how you mentally and um, emotionally feel when certain topics come up. You're going to be able to say, okay, I'm starting to realize that when we start talking about this, I start to get stressed, anxiety, anxious, uh, defensive. I start to feel these things. And this is the way then I show it. I might show it with being defensive of crossing my arms. I might show that I'm starting to get anxious with tapping my foot, clicking my pen. Like these are the things I'm starting to show how I'm emotionally feeling. And then how it's starting to show the person I'm talking to, even I might not know it, but how it's starting to show, or I, my body posture, right? I turn my body away from the person. So all these things that show how you're feeling at that time. And if you're more in touch with your relationship to conflict, you're then more in touch with what your body is showing and emotionally how you're feeling. Because we just don't think about all this stuff. It's like, we're in conflict or we're not. And we don't think about like, what does it look like? And so, you know, my partner, he laughs. He's like, you don't care about being in conflict. And, and I'm at the age now, I really don't. Because if I'm feeling something, I think it's worse for me to hold it in and be like a damn volcano, right? Where you held in yeah. all this stuff versus saying, hey, I, you know, what you said was problematic and I just didn't appreciate it. And then we can have a conversation. And people can't handle that. Like people I've realized of the people who always can't handle are the ones who are like, I can talk the real talk. I can handle all this. But then I'm like, what you said was problematic. And they're like, oh, shot to the heart. I can't handle that. Oh, no. What are you saying to me? Right? Like, they can't. The ones who be like, I tell the truth all the time. Baby, you might tell it, but you can't handle it. And that's a difference. Right? We see the people in leadership who want to be like screaming at people and all this stuff. But when their supervisor's like, what you did was wrong, their little heart is broken and they can't handle it. And then they take it out on the people that they supervise. And so that relationship to conflict in the workplace is so important because if you don't know your, your relationship to conflict, your workplace will be harmful, violent, and you will see people, your retention will be zero because all people are doing is working and looking for a job, baby, because they do not want to work there. So your retention is going to be ridiculous and you're just going to be cycling people in and out because they do not want to work. And then you'll get people who don't really care about the place just to get a job because they know how bad it is to get maybe some more money just so they can look for their next job. And so understand that relationship to conflict is so important. So um, when you are in a workshop setting or in a consultative environment, how do you simulate like navigating conflict? <laughs> how does that, like tactically, how do you do that? So it, you know, it's been different virtual. You really can't do it as well compared to in-person. And so what I tell people is that like, so what I would do in prior workshops is I would give people essentially case studies and say, okay, 
you're going to be the person who says this and you're going to be the person who is saying what you said was problematic. So it might be a situation when I was with people is saying like, um, you hear a friend telling a black girl that um, she sounds like a white person. Like, oh, you sound so white. I, what are you going to say to that person? And I tell the person who said the problematic comment, you have got to push back hard. And so it might be a situation where Robert, um, say you're the person who was like, oh my gosh, Jen sounds like a white girl. I'd be like, well, Robert, that's problematic. Why'd you say that? And you, you might be like, well, Jen, I didn't really mean anything by it. Robert, I know you didn't, but what that what you said was problematic. And, and so we'll go back and forth with you saying, because I think we all know what people say in that situation. That's my friend. She knows I was joking. I would never say anything. I like black people, my black, right? Like all these things that people have heard a zillion times. And now you're developing your words to say something against that. Because what tends to happen is that people know it's wrong in the situation. They just have no clue what they're gonna say. And so they just stay quiet because they just, they're like, I just don't know what to say versus helping people gain kind of that verbal experience. Because the reality is, is that you can read every single book you literally you can read everything humanly possible and when that situation happens baby that shit all goes out the window you forget it all and you're just sitting there like what did page five say what what book was it and you you can't even remember anything because you're you're basing off of a book versus saying in order to learn and be better i have to gain that verbal experience which means if i hear something i say something and at first it might be just me being like hey what you said was problematic and that's it. And then as I gain more experience and more knowledge that I can connect it to, hey, what you said was problematic because it makes it sound like that if a person sounds white, that they're articulate, but if they sound, if they sound quote, quote, black, that they're not. And this is why it's problematic. And so when you gain more of that verbal experience, you can start putting together saying what was said was wrong and the, the knowledge that goes behind it. So it sounds like a verbal DEI gym where you're kind of like getting your reps in. <laughs> Literally, it isn't. You, you, you're doing pull-ups and saying it's problematic. Push-ups and saying it's harmful, baby. Right. You get in that, that DEI gym. Absolutely, Robert. <laughs> right. You have to have that experience. That's pretty yep. That's a really good point. Um, and you know, it's funny because I, I noticed that you don't really shy away from vulnerable moments. Um, could you talk a little bit about how how vulnerable we should be getting and um, how that helps people navigate the challenges they face. I think we kind of touched on it a little bit, but um, could you talk about how that builds up that, that resilience there? So, so we have to kind of understand that there's two aspects of being vulnerable. There's an, there's an aspect of understand, of starting to say, I'm understanding myself better versus an aspect where I'm making you feel like um, not uncomfortable, but that I have to take care of you. And so what we saw was the take care of you part with George Floyd. People, especially white people would be like, oh my gosh, Robert, I just didn't even know. I'm so sorry. Oh, and now they're putting all this vulnerability on you. Yes, but it's making you have to take care of them. It's okay, Jen. I understand. We're still friends. I know you didn't check on me. It's okay. You don't have to cry. Like that part, we, we don't want that. I'll be transparent. Like, because now I'm having to worry and care about you in a moment that I'm facing a lot of trauma and figuring out how to navigate myself. A different vulnerability would be me is saying, you know, Robert, I fully am starting to see how my whiteness affects X, Y, and Z. And I'm starting to investigate that more. I'm starting to see, you know, the books I bought my kids, how that stuff was problematic because it had no, no characters of color. It only had talking animals or white people. I'm now starting to realize that 
you know, my parents who are white, who were liberals actually said problematic things. You see, there's a difference in the vulnerability. And that's what we have to acknowledge. It's like me, you know, the black woman um, talking to someone disabled, the wrong type of vulnerability be like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry for you. I'm just, I'm so scared that I become vulnerable. I did, or I become disabled. I don't know how you do it. Oh my God. And now I'm like pouring onto them all this excess that they don't need versus me saying, I did not realize how I've been socialized to look at ability over disabled and how problematic I've been, how harmful I've been. The things I've said and done that have been very problematic couch under this good, able-bodied person. And that's really uncomfortable with me to sit through. And I have to navigate that. And that doesn't mean you as a disabled friend have to teach me, have to do any of these things. No, what it means is acknowledging, recognizing, and starting to educate and change myself. So there's a different level of vulnerability. And I think people have to understand the, the, the difference. If you want to talk about what you didn't know prior to George Floyd, talk to your white friends. Y'all cry about together and figure out what you're going to do better. But don't come and cry to me because I'm sitting here trying to think about my trauma of which of watching George uh, Floyd or Patrick was at Leola being murdered. I got watched out on just 24 hour news clips and, and hearing about and reading about and seeing people's hot takes and white people, why they think this was was actually the right thing to do. I got to sit with all this trauma and I got to take care of you. I ain't got time for that. I got to sit there and worry about my black partner and him not being murdered. I ain't got to worry about you crying over your white son's black friend. Like I, I can't do that. And so really understand what is like, what is vulnerable and what is you just kind of word vomiting on someone because you're now starting to realize maybe you were problematic. Totally understand that. Um, and, you know, when you consult with athletic organizations and other companies, is there something that you've typically realized that almost every organization needs, like that one or two things that you see within every company? Yeah, I, I think the first thing is that everyone needs a foundation of language to say, how do we talk about these terms of race, racism, homophobia, transphobia? Because what the situation is, is that it's not if, but when. When is a problematic thing going to happen? How have we talked about it? Because what tends to happen is that, say there's a racial comment on Slack and everyone's upset, but the conversation is only about how do we define racism? So you spend two weeks talking about, well, this is the definition of racism. This is the definition. So you have lost the moment to hold someone accountable because you have spent so long trying to decide what the definition of racism even is. And that's where you tend to see like the semantics and wordsmith stop the accountability. Well, this is what I saw and this is what I read about rate versus saying, this is a company, how we define these words. Well, understand that words are flexible, words are nuanced and they move and shift. At this point, it might change in the future, but this is how we talk about this word. This is how we talk about transphobia. So that when an incident happens, we all already have this language of how we talk about these issues. And that can help then the move forward to accountability versus sitting on the definition. That's, a, I think, the first thing. And I think the second thing, especially within college athletics, there's such a power dynamic, right? I mean, for, for work, it's the person that could fire you. But in the end, you know, the person that could take you off of projects and all that. What we see within college athletics, I mean, they could take their scholarships away. I mean, there's, and we're talking about like 18 to 22-year-olds. And because... The real reason is, you know, I'm cutting your scholarship because I need to make sure I get my contract next year. And so really kind of thinking about this aspect also, like I said, like conflict and how you navigate it 
because within, especially with college teams, we don't talk about enough. We see so many of these college coaches just screaming and grabbing. Heck, in the volleyball community, men's volleyball, uh, a, a male volleyball coach who's coached men and women for decades, who was like probably going to go into the Hall of Fame, was on tape, on video during a game, smacking a player in the face. Literally, I mean, everywhere. It was Princeton versus, I think, Sacred Heart. Bob Bertucci smacked the player in the face. He will never be in the Hall of Fame because of that. You, you can't. And so this aspect of conflict within the power dynamic that allows coaches and staff to treat these 18, 20-year-olds like that because they need their contract, I think is something that we need to talk more about. And that's, I think, the second thing that everyone needs to talk about is language and then conflict. Language and then conflict. You know, uh, when it comes to all of these things related to DEI posture, I know that you have a lot of experience with it, especially um, working with your volleyball teams and now consulting with other organizations. What's like... Uh, What's what's the subject where you know when you get to dig your heels into it, you're like, yes, I know exactly what to give y'all. I know exactly um, how to do this. Like, where do you find yourself just like enjoying the process when it comes to working with companies? I mean, everything. You know, it's yeah. it's a hard topic, but I think if you make it somewhat enjoyable, as weird as this to say, yeah. that it it it's it, hard but it's also enjoyable so I like to make sure I use a lot of good analogies per the profession I'm talking about whether it's hair tech libraries like using really good analogies also you know I work with a partner a lot Victoria and we have a good rapport and that we also are funny and I think many times people think because we're talking about a hard topics you can't like have fun and make it funny and we do that and we're like you know we joke around we talk about that also it's in this hard topic because that's who we are and so you know, all throughout it, I'm always throwing jokes, but it's jokes that like, I, you know, as a speaker, you have to understand like the ebbs and flows of your talk. You have to understand like, where is it appropriate to put a joke? Where is it not appropriate to put a joke? Like, who can you joke with? Who can you not? So like all those things. And so because of that, it kind of throughout it makes it enjoyable. But I, I would really say is when you start to see like you have a group of people that are coming in and they know it's gonna be hard, but they're also willing to learn so they're open. They're talking a lot. Like the the ones I have a great time with are the ones who, so when I go through, say I have a 90 minute talk, I have my slide deck and more than likely I have more slides than time. But what I tend to do is I situate conversation as the number one thing. So if I get through five slides, because we are having amazing conversation, we're gonna get through five slides. If I have, if we get through more slides, we get through more. And so I really situate conversation. And so I've had some amazing groups who they like, I'll say, okay, I need three volunteers. I have six volunteers. Okay, bet. And everyone is adding, it's something really valuable because it's, it's not that like, I'm just going to say something just to hurry people through, but like, I'm saying something that's valuable. Those are just, I mean, awesome conversations. I just had two schools that I was like, y'all have done blown my mind about the like vulnerability the stuff they're talking to me about with each other. I like, I was like, y'all are good. Like students, they're going to rule the world because I just hear what they're talking about in such complexity and nuance, but love and respect. I'm like, y'all are, y'all are going to be good. And so I think that's where I just enjoy it the most is seeing people who are like, we're going to have a good time. But then also the people who might look a little standoffish and they get through it and they realize it's about skill building and not being like, you're a bad person, but like, I'm here because I want them to be better. You start to see them like maybe, you know, uncurl their hands, they're writing notes in the parent shares, they're actually talking to people, they might share out. 
and that's where it's like, okay, we're doing some good stuff because I'm allowing people to kind of help take down their, you know, their, their walls so that they can actually start learning and being a better person. That's awesome. Yeah. It's obvious that you really enjoy it. I, I really liked the reviews after your sessions too, because people, <laughs> it really clicks with them, you know, whether it's students or other members, members of the faculty. Um, so it was really cool to see that and to experience these conversations with you too, because it's always, um, it's always a good time. Just like you mentioned, mm -hmm. like you always infuse humor into it um, in, in your personality. So, you know, when it comes to the things that, you know, in, in terms of like all the things that you do related to DEI, um, if you were to leave uh, people with like one insight or one gem of guidance to um, act upon after today's, um, after they listen to today's episode, what would be that one thing that you would advise them to do? Go to therapy. <laughs> I'm just serious. Like, go to therapy because that is going to help you unpack more gems. That's going to start making you think more about conflict. That's going to make you start, like, go to therapy. I think, you know, we don't want to go to therapy because we're afraid of all the stuff it'll uncover. And if you're in a place that things are already being uncovered, when you come to my session, you're already uncovering things about yourself versus, versus your. 45, 46, 50 in my session. And me talking to you about conflict is now making you start to think about how your parents were. And you are just destroyed in a way because you're realizing the harmful things that your, um, that your dad did to you. Now you're perpetrating to your son. Like that's some hard stuff to realize the things that your dad did to you that you hated the most, you are doing to your kids. And so I don't want you to have to learn that in a group of 90, 100 people. I want you to learn that in therapy so that when you come, you can maybe talk to the white guy next to you and be like, yeah, you know, I realized that I was doing this thing that my, my dad did and this is how I've been handling it. And that person would be like, word, I didn't realize I was doing that. And now you're building this conversation because you're looking into yourself more. So literally go to therapy because you don't want to learn about the hard parts of yourself in front of a whole bunch of people for the first time. That's an amazing take. Thank you for that. It, you know, similar to the way that people really prioritize nutritionists and their other physicians, mm -hmm. um, DEI therapy. I think that's a really good topic too. Um, mm -hmm. Well, Jen, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, this has been a really electrifying talk. Um, I just really appreciate you sharing your insights, your thoughts, and um, all of your brilliance with us today on this call. So I'm looking forward to connecting with you more on, on further uh, engagements too. Oh, please do anything, Robert. I'm here to help y'all. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jen. Yep. If you're looking for DEI assessments, benchmarking tools, sourcing support, training, and more, look no further. Go to www.matheson.io and book a call to speak with us. The link is in the description. We're looking forward to connecting with you next time.